Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Welcome back. This is the third day of our Blogs Roundup podcasts. Today, I'm going to be introducing four blogs from people you've heard from already over the last couple of days. The first one is by me, Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher at University College London. In this blog, I discuss whether you should do a master's degree. This blog was particularly aimed at people who are thinking about getting into dementia research and understanding what they could do to take the very first steps. Should I do a master's? Studying for a dementia or neuroscience-related master's degree is an exciting prospect, and there are many reasons to consider taking this postgraduate course. After talking to a number of master's graduates, there are many reasons that they followed, including progressing a current clinical career path, developing a personal interest, or as a stepping stone to progressing to a higher qualification, example, PhD. However, Master's study is intense, and the course can be expensive. You'll also likely need relevant work experience for entry onto the programme. In order to make the most of postgraduate study, it's vital to have a solid reason for committing to a course. Knowing why you're studying will also be incredibly helpful when it comes to staying motivated and seeing the course. Will I have time to study a Master's? Master's study must fit around your lifestyle, so identifying the mode of study that's right for you is essential. Full-time study is the most common and suits continuing students. You'll work intensively for the duration of the programme, achieving your qualification as quickly as possible. Contact hours vary from course to course, but full-time study involves several lectures and seminars each week, and right now many of those might not be in the classroom. Alternatively, it could require you to attend university from 9 till 5 every weekday. Many courses will give you an opportunity to do or work or project placements in the university you work at as well. Assisting with research studies or assisting in a care home or, or similar. Part-time study, meanwhile, is primarily aimed at students with family commitments and or full-time employment. Perhaps if you're a nurse or healthcare professional. You'll usually study for around 20 hours each week, and while the qualification takes longer, often two to four years, teaching is flexible and lectures and seminars take place during the daytime or evening. Sessions are commonly hosted during the weekends or even recorded for students to access online. Full-time work and part-time study is particularly popular for those who are self-funding their course. Other modes of study worth considering include blended learning, combining face-to-face -face classroom with online learning. You can interact with lecturers and tutors and fellow students whilst working from home. Block mode learning involves intense face-to-face -face study over a fixed period, often weekends or consecutive days, allowing students to book time off work in advance. And distance learning, which entails learning from home in your own time. You'll get the resources and the support from a personal tutor and you can take as long as you need to complete the course. 
Can I do a PhD without a master's? To be accepted onto a PhD, which is the highest qualification a student can achieve, students usually have a relevant master's degree. This is because students cannot attain the requisite level of in-depth knowledge without a particular area of a particular area without master's study. Those looking to progress onto a PhD from master's study can benefit from making contacts for future reference and surrounding themselves with students and colleagues who share the same aims and interests. However, the minimum entry required for most PhDs is an upper second class bachelor's degree. So it's possible for those without a master's to gain entry onto a doctoral programme. But it's more common for science students to progress directly to a PhD from an undergraduate course, whilst those are studying in the arts and humanities um, will generally need a master's. Are you ready to do a master's? Well, thanks to prospects.ac.uk for this list. Before committing to a master's degree, ask yourself the following questions. Am I fully prepared? Or rather, am I fully aware of the level of commitment required to undertake the master's study? Am I prepared to do more studying and less partying than at undergraduate level? Am I excited by the opportunity to write another, even longer dissertation or research project? Can I afford the master's study in terms of tuition fees and living costs? Am I willing to accrue more graduate debt or alternatively make potential lengthy applications for funding? Am I willing to live on a budget in order to cover my living expenses while my friends are in full-time employment? And will the postgraduate qualification improve my career prospects? Is the qualification highly uh, rated by employers within my ideal industry? Will the qualification equip me with the specific skills needed for my ideal career? Will my studies allow me to qualify as a professional? Am I genuinely passionate about the qualification and the subject? I think in dementia most of you are. And am I certain that the course I'm looking for is right for me? What dementia and neuroscience courses are out there? Well, we're working on maintaining a list of the currently available master's courses in the UK. And here on our website, you can find a list of those that we've been able to find. What will doing a master's really be like? Well... I have to be honest with you, I haven't personally done one. So what would I know? I wrote this blog having spoken to many master's students and after undertaking some online research. Over the coming year, however, we're following Morgan Daniel, a dementia and neuroscience uh, master's student at University College London. She'll be blogging for Dementia Researcher and I highly recommend anybody who's listening to this, who's thinking of doing a master's degree, to have a look at her blogs to get the inside track on what doing a master's will be really like. If you have any questions, Morgan will be doing a Twitter takeover to share her typical days uh, and will also be taking your questions. Uh, you can follow our Twitter feed, which is at dem underscore researcher on the 20th of October to find out more and you can put your questions to her.
Thank you for listening. In 2021, we're going to work with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society and Race Against Dementia and other partners to hopefully encourage more undergraduates and young people to consider dementia research as a serious career option. In the next blog, we have Dr Clarissa Glebel from Liverpool discussing taking research outside of its bubble. Bubbles being something we've all become familiar with this year. Taking research out of its bubble. In the time of COVID-19 and now being in lockdown 2.0, remote working and meeting has become the norm. What's becoming really fun is when you have back-to-back meetings and you barely have time to make a cup of green tea in between. Doing everything remotely these days within research, it can sometimes be difficult making sure that our work doesn't just stay within the research bubble, but actually reaches people. Since the pandemic, we've had to quickly adapt and, for example, turn seminars into webinars and engage with our public advisors however is best for them. Telephone, Skype, Zoom or good old post. So what can we do with our research and take it out of its bubble, also known as the published paper? We can do all sorts of things to both reach a wider audience and try and create some impact with our work. For example, we can write a blog, such as for this one, make videos, use social media, create lay summaries or give a talk. It really depends on your work and what fits best and who you would like to reach. Considering the topical nature of COVID-19 and the effects on people with dementia and care home residents in particular, we wanted to make sure that our work so far into this nasty virus and social support services for dementia doesn't just stay published in a paper. We showed that people with dementia seem to deteriorate faster in lockdown one, but also how much COVID-19 related social support service closures have impacted on the mental health of people with dementia and carers. People didn't get much support anymore, not that they received much before the pandemic necessarily, but everything counts. People suffered, unpaid carers took on additional caring duties and became overburdened. Whilst we shared these early findings in one of our regular Liverpool Dementia and Ageing Research Fora, created lay summaries, used social media and roadblocks, I also thought it important to try and discuss how we can translate these findings into real-life benefits. Our findings were incredibly negative and downbeat, so trying to do something positive with them felt even more important. That's why I organised a remote workshop on how to adapt social support services during the pandemic. Around 30 different providers from clinical and third sector backgrounds attended, as well as family carers. We've heard from three different service providers, including the Louis Buddy Society and the Brain Charity, about how the pandemic has affected their ability to provide support. We all went into breakout rooms and discussed experiences and tried to come up with some key elements of how to enable service provision during COVID. Across the groups, we came up with five key elements. Flexibility, taking an individual approach, using all possible channels of providing information and support, being available, and support with using internet-based services. Service providers and family carers suggested to be as flexible with ways of supporting people as possible, which could involve using phone calls, Skype, letters, or videos, for example. And given the high level of digital illiteracy in older adults, attendees expressed a need for support in using the internet. This can obviously be a tricky issue, 
but something that really needs to get a lot more attention within the social care sector and more support from government. Our summer leaflet is published online if you fancy having a proper read. Holding such a workshop was a really nice way to have a wider think about that huge question, so what? Why do we do research? This has helped at least a little bit to take that next step. But there's only so much as researchers can do. What is really needed now is for the government to take much better notice and actively support social care and those at the receiving end better. Hopefully MPs will debate this topic well next week, Thursday on the 12th of November in the House of Commons. Some tips to help you get your research out of its academic bubble include write a blog, use social media to share, produce a lay summary, be creative and make a video, present at a conference, give a seminar, look out for pop science events such as Pind of Science, talk to your friends and family about it, it's a great way to describe your work in non-academic terms. And to take that next step, hold a workshop and start translating evidence into practice. We recorded a few podcasts over the course of a year discussing how researchers adapted to life under COVID-19 restrictions and also how their research had developed during this time. If you'd like to share your story, either be that in a blog or in any of our podcasts, please do drop us a line using the Contact Us page on our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. The next blog comes back to Morgan Daniel. You'll remember Morgan is studying for an MSc in Neuroscience at University College London. By now, she's a few months into her work, and we're going to hear from her updating us on the story so far. Hi everyone. Since you last heard from me, the situation in the UK has changed quite a bit. England are now in countrywide lockdown again, and I'm no longer allowed to visit my family in Scotland until restrictions ease. Looking back on how much has changed in the past few months, I realised how quickly time had passed and how much of my MSc has now flown by. I therefore thought that this month it would be worth looking back on my experience of my master's degree so far. I knew that moving to a new university for my master's would be a huge change, and it was, but I'm thankful that due to online learning, this no longer includes getting lost on campus. Moodle is almost as confusing to navigate at first but the staff and admin team for my course ask for feedback constantly in order to make Moodle as efficient and useful as possible. Once I wrapped my head around Moodle and the various courses I was taking this semester, I was able to dive into learning. Our course content was intense from the get-go, with a lot to learn each week and plenty of reading to do for each lecture. Our lecture slides and a recorded lecture are posted in advance of a live question and answer session during which we can ask any questions we may have and the lecturer can encourage further conversation on important topics. When I first heard that UCL would be adopting an online learning approach, I did not think that it would be as engaging as this, and I'm pleasantly surprised. I find that lectures being uploaded in advance gives me enough time to go over the content and really take in the information provided. This is something I struggle to do in the more typical lecture format, particularly during my undergraduate degree. The opportunity to interact with the clinicians and lecturers teaching the course leaves more time for discussion and deeper learning, and is something I think people have found really useful. I'm lucky enough to have an hour or two of in-person teaching each week on campus at Queen's Square. This takes place in the format of a journal club, where we discuss recent research in various areas of neurodegenerative disease. I have massively enjoyed these sessions. They've provided an opportunity to meet my classmates in a safe manner, 
and have provided networking opportunities with the faculty, staff and PhD students who run the sessions. I found that these sessions have really developed my skills and my ability to critique current research and that this has complemented my studying well. My first graded assignment is due at the beginning of December and involves critical appraisal of a published paper and this journal club session has given me the skills necessary for this assignment. The workload can at times be quite intense and I spend a lot of my time studying on top of the teaching hours that we have been assigned. However, this does not feel like a chore. The course content is extremely interesting and all of the material that we've been given is really engaging. I'm enjoying learning so much about the different types of dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases that I did not know much about before starting this degree. I have assignments and exams coming up in the first few weeks of December, so the preparation for these has already begun. With the current online lear- learning format, I feel much more prepared to begin studying for my exams than I ever have before. I plan to knuckle down and hit the books for the next few weeks before enjoying a well-deserved Christmas break. Thanks for reading and listening, and please tune in next month. Morgan. Do make sure you join us again tomorrow to hear more from Morgan. And make sure you never miss any of her blogs by visiting our website, clicking the register button at the top of the page to receive our Friday bulletins. The next blog comes from Dr. Emily Oliver. Here she's discussing her experience of sitting on an ethics panel and what it's like to be on the other side of the table for once. Hello everyone and welcome to the second instalment of my monthly blog. The topic of this month's blog has come about following my first experience as a member on ethics committee this month. During the second year of my PhD and following my attendance to an ethics committee, I submitted an application to the Health Research Authority to become a member of the panel for my local rec. Almost six years later, and a few invitations to interview which didn't quite work out time-wise, after work one Tuesday, I sat down at my laptop to join as a member on the other side. During this session, I reflected on my experience as an early career researcher and thought, what better to write about than this? So here we are. Although usually face-to-face, due to COVID-19, the Ethics Committee review, like many things, has moved into the virtual space. At 4.15 one Tuesday evening, myself and about 10 other members joined to review five studies that had been submitted in the past month. Each study had a lead and a second reviewer who looked at the study in depth prior to the meeting and then presented to the group, posing any ethical concerns or queries that they had. This was then followed by an open discussion and an opportunity for others on the panel to to contribute. Following this, and the part that many of you have experienced, the panel invited the researcher to join, clarifying and discussing the points that had been raised by the panel members. Once the researcher had left, the committee clarified the decision, and this is then passed over to administrator to complete the relevant paperwork and inform the reacher of the decision. Easy. Well, easy for me, sat on the panel, not having my whole research project hanging in the balance, but I know what it's like to be on the other side having submitted your research. As I said, during the meeting I reflected on what it felt like to be an early career researcher, sitting on the other side of the panel, having submitted my first study for ethical review. I remember being so nervous at the thought of others reviewing my research and so intimidated by the 10 to 12 people sat in front of me asking questions. I truly thought that the panel was somewhat against me, looking to pick apart my research, not wanting me to succeed and finding any excuse to give me an unfavourable opinion. I remember not asking any questions, just answering nervously to their questions, too scared to have a discussion and just willing to accept anything they suggested as a way to ensure my submission was approved. Having now sat on the other side and being part of the panel, I realised how poorly I treated the whole experience and how wrong my judgement was with regards to the people on the committee. 
The ethics panel are a group of people with extensive experience and expertise. They are people who are there for their love of research, as they don't get paid, and as such, they are people who, in the most, want the studies to go ahead. Ethics panel members are only ensuring that the safety of the participants is at the forefront of research, and if they do contest or question areas of your research, it's for a good reason. They are not there to test your knowledge or catch you out, but just discuss some of the decisions you have made in your research, mostly to clarify what you have written, but also just because they are generally interested in what you are planning to do. Having reflected on both my experience as a researcher submitting an application and as a committee member, here are a few tips that might help if you're just starting a research career and are about to take part in your first review. Discuss your concerns and worries with your supervisors. They will have a lot of experience in attending and supporting students through the review. Speak to other early career researchers about their experience. Ask them what amendments they had and see if there are any ways you could adapt your research to prevent receiving the same feedback. Put your participants first. The committee's priority is the safety of the participants involved in the study. As long as you have their safety and well-being at the forefront, you will be on to a winner. Think about the risks. Some studies do need to take risks and ethics committees are not oblivious to this. If you know what the risks are and are unable to talk them through, then the ethics committee are more likely to understand why you need to take them. Grammar and language does play a part. Of course, the committee focuses mostly on the research itself, but poor spelling and lack of consistency in language does affect how the reviewers view your application. The most important thing to remember is that ethics committee members do not have claws and scaly feet, anything but. They are a group of very nice people with a wealth of knowledge and expertise who are there to make your research safe and more often than not, better. Don't be a scared early career researcher like I was. See it as an opportunity to gain a different perspective on your research. Ask them questions about what they think is best. Ask about how other studies have done something similar, which has been successful. And most of all, try and enjoy it. If you are considering a career in research, it's something you'll have to do a lot. So let's see it as a positive experience. Oh, and for those who are still dreading the thought of going to an ethics review and have a spare evening, you are able to sit on a committee as a lay member and just observe how they run. The scariest thing is often the unknown, so it might help calm those nerves. See you next time. Getting that all-important ethics approval for your research is something that is much discussed, both on social media and in our previous blogs and podcasts. If you're trying to get ethics for your study right now, we hope some of the things we've produced will be useful to you and that Emily's comments are helpful. That's, I'm afraid, all we've got time for. Join us again tomorrow for more blogs. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.